Hi, this is Steve Thomas, pastor of the First Baptist Church at Delray Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We study God's Word to apply it to our lives in order to make a difference in this life and in eternity. We hope you enjoy this message. We cry out, we cry out. To grace. Even though grace is something that's a free gift that we don't deserve, there's still some resistance to it. And I would say this morning, it's almost overwhelmingly irrational when we resist God's grace. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Grace resistance, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. If you're new to us, we preach through major sections of Scripture. And last year we did the first 16 chapters of Acts, and now we pick up with Acts chapter 17. Well, some of you know I'm a really bad golfer. I know that's wrong to be here in Florida because there's more golf courses per capita, I think, than anywhere in the United States. And so it seems like I'm just doing my civic duty to play golf, right? But I hadn't played in like five years, maybe more. And I don't know if you know it, but to play golf, you actually have to play golf. It's not a sport where you can just go out and like shoot some hoops and you're, you're good, just like you always were. It's something you have to play a lot of to be any good at. And my expectation when I went out to play a week and a half, two weeks ago with my, my sons, was it wasn't going to be great. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have any visions of grandeur that I was going to be, you know, Jordan Spieth or Tiger Woods. I just, I just wanted to get the ball off the tee, you know. If you've ever played, you know, it's a lot of pressure on the first tee. You know, there's a whole gallery of people around watching, at least five. And the starter is there, and he's going to, he's like the guy who decides if you're worthy to be on the course, you know. So you want to at least get it off the tee box. And so I, I line up, and I'm thinking this, somehow in my mind, I'm thinking it's just going to be, I'm going to hit this amazing shot. I don't know why I thought that, because it didn't happen at all. I hit it off the heel of the driver, and it, it got off the tee box, let's just say. And I was happy with that, and I got an eight on the very first hole. Probably not even an eight. But in my world, you don't give anybody worse than an eight. Second hole, though, I hit an amazing, I got a four. I got a four, and that's the great thing about golf, because in the next hole, you can hit a great shot and forget about all the other bad, bad holes, bad shots you just had. It's like having New Year's Day every hole. You forgot about all the stuff you did in the last year, and now you have another chance to make up for it. And you hit a great shot, you're thinking, there's a thought that creeps in the back of your head. I'm pretty good at this. I, I could do this. This is not that hard. That's how we can be spiritually as well. It just takes one good day or one good encounter, one good quiet time, and we kind of forgot about all the stuff we have done the rest of the time. And we start to think, we got this. God, I got this. Thank you for putting me in this position to succeed. Thank you for that. I just, I'm just so grateful that you gave me this opportunity. And I, 
I got it now. I got it now. Just, just let me go. Point me in the right direction. I'm good. I'll report back on Sunday. I may even talk to some godly people during the week or text them or think about texting them. I may even open your word, but I got it. I got this. That's how we can be. You know, it's irrational, isn't it? To have the God of the universe wanting to strengthen us, wanting to live through us, and yet even those of us who've received grace can be resistant to it. Look at Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, and suddenly my notes have disappeared. Who needs notes? Um, Let's read off the screen. The word of the Lord says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now Paul and his two good buddies, his son in the faith, Timothy, and Silas, his sidekick, They are on this incredible missionary journey. I mean, how much fun. They're going from town to town sharing the good news of Jesus. They're getting run out of town. They're getting put in jail. They're getting put in stocks and chains, and there's earthquakes that break them out at Philippi. Incredible. And they hang out there, and they get to lead the jailer and his family to the Lord. I mean, what an adventure they've been on. They got to lead this very important uh, businesswoman, Lydia, to the Lord and her family, And, and there's this church that formed in Philippi, and But they got typically run out of town and asked to leave, and so they do, and they go down to the city of Thessalonica, which was at that time, and is still today, the second largest city in Greece. So they they head out to Thessalonica, and and they go, but on the way, they go through Amphipolis and Apollonia. Always always notice names in Scripture. You're like, why do they put these names? Again, real names, real places, real names of people, real people, real events. Apollonia um, and Amphipolis are real cities. Um, But he didn't stop there, apparently, because Paul has a strategy that he really wants to go to the Jews first in every city. And it's likely that Amphipolis and um, Apollonia, there's no Jewish synagogue. So it, it's not a good entry point for him. And, and he, does, he can't stop at every little town. He's thinking, I'm going to go all the way to Europe. That's what he's thinking. I'm going to go all the way to Spain. That's where he's trying to get. And so he's, he's being judicious with his, his time. And so he, goes, he passes through these smaller, less important cities to get to the city of Thessalonica, which was very significant and very important. And so Paul goes to Thessalonica, and he goes into the synagogue. And the synagogue, as most of you know, was kind of a church-like place. And it took 10 families, 10 men, leaders of families, to form a synagogue in any city. And it was a kind of an outpost for Jewish worship. Worship. If you didn't live close enough to the temple to worship there regularly, they would form a synagogue in a city, and that's where the Jews would typically gather to worship. So Paul goes to the synagogue. There's a synagogue of the Jews in um, Thessalonica, verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, on the Sabbath day, they would have worship at the synagogue, and it would be prayer and opening the scriptures, reading, discussing, explaining. 
And so Paul has this incredible background as a Jewish teacher, and so he is one who would be looked to, and naturally they would want to hear what he has to say. So he does three things. He shows up, and he participates in this worship, but then he also reasons with them from Scripture. See, the great thing about the synagogue and the great thing about the Jewish people is they already know the Old Testament. They already know what God has said, substantially the Scriptures from the Old Testament, a lot of those Scriptures they would have had. And so Paul sits and he reasons with them, which means he presents a case. He has a logical format. He's showing them what the Scriptures say. He reasons with them from Scripture. And the way that he reasons is he explains and proves, first of all, that it is necessary, not just an option, but from Scripture, from the prophecies, from the law of old, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, the Christ is the Greek term meaning really Messiah, future king, anointed one, the rescuer king, the Christ. It is necessary for the Christ to come, to suffer, and to rise from the dead. Here's what he's saying. All of these scriptures, all these prophecies, they've already been in place. You know these things, but you probably haven't been paying attention to them. Or maybe you don't like those particular words that it says, like in Isaiah 53, that by his stripes we are healed. And, and the Lord saw fit to lay the iniquity of us all on him. Paul, no doubt, would have been speaking from Isaiah 53. And also probably from the Psalms where it says he would not let his body uh, seek ruin or decay, that he would raise him up. So that's what he is proclaiming to them in the synagogue. But it's interesting, that was sort of news to them. It's not the king that they wanted. They wanted a conquering king, didn't they? They wanted a David-like king, a powerful warrior who would take on Rome and make them a great earthly nation. Again, that's what they were looking for. Just remember, God's people often have an idea of the kind of king that they want. 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel, this great leader, this great godly man who had led the people for so long, he's starting to get old. And the people of Israel come to him and they go, hey, look, Samuel, you know, listen, you're getting close to 65. We got Social Security kicking in for you. We got Medicare. You know, I mean, you're, you're pretty much done. Let's admit it. Those of us in our 60s know that's not true, amen? We're just getting going, right? 60s and 70s are what used to be the 30s and 40s, right? Can you be with me on that? Okay. We're going to believe that. Um, but they came to him, and actually Samuel actually lives a lot longer than this. If you read First and Second Samuel, this is not the end of his road at all. But they come to him and they go, hey, look, Samuel, listen, man, it's time for you to retire. Your sons, you know, they're really, really not followers of God at all. They're not suitable replacements for you, so here's what we want to do. Name us a king. Get us a king so we can be like everybody else. If you read 1 Samuel 8, it's heartbreaking. In other words, Samuel, you've led us to be connected to God through you, God's man, God's leader, God's priest, Samuel, but, you know, that's just not working for us anymore. We want someone else to do all that. 
We want someone else to go between us and God. We want a king to lead us into battle like all the other nations. That's what we want. And that's often what we want out of God, isn't it? God, we want to be like everyone else. Lead us to victory in this world like everyone else wants to be led to victory. God, do for me what I want done so I can be great in this world. That's our call for a king, and that's what they were looking for. And Paul is explaining to them, no, the Scriptures make it clear. This Christ, this Messiah will have to die. He'll have to suffer, and he'll have to rise again. And he proclaims that Jesus Christ is this great king. It's an incredible, incredible statement to them. Paul connects the dots. And how would they respond? Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded. Praise God. Some of the Jews were persuaded. The ones that are typically the most Um, aggressive in their opposition to him, but the ones who have so much to offer because they have a background in the scriptures. It says, but some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. In other words, there was a pretty significant response. Some Jews responded. Some of the Gentiles responded. Some high-level women responded. It's pretty good response. It's, It's exciting to see what God was doing uh, among them. But, verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. Meaning the rest of the Jews that didn't respond. Have you ever been jealous? What is it that really makes you jealous? Someone at work gets the accolades you thought you should have gotten. Uh, Someone gets the attention of someone you were interested in that you don't have attention of. Maybe as a sibling, you had sibling rivalry that you you were jealous of your siblings that maybe they got more attention than you. Um, The Jews were jealous. And let me just stop on that word for a moment. Luke also uses this word in Acts when he describes, when he's, he's recounting Stephen talking about Joseph back in Genesis. And how Joseph's brothers, remember they, they saw Joseph coming with a technicolor dream coat. It's actually just a coat of many colors. But uh, they saw him coming with this coat that his, par- his dad had given him. And, and he was, um, his dad was really saying Joseph's my favorite, right? And they saw Joseph coming. And Joseph had, you know, kind of probably not a great idea. He shared with his brothers his dreams that they would one day bow down to him. And Joseph was number 11 of 12. Not probably the best way to win brothers and influence them to love you. But he told you, you're going to bow down to me. Now the truth is they did bow down to him later. So they see Joseph coming, and the brothers were jealous. So it's not just a passing jealousy of, oh man, we're upset about Joseph. It's a jealousy that enraged them and saying, we got to do something about this kid. He thinks he's going to rule over us. Let's get rid of him. Let's kill him. One of the brothers stood up and said, no, let's don't kill him, but let's pretend like he got killed by a wild animal and we'll sell him. That's the kind of jealousy that they had. And that's the kind of jealousy the Jews are having towards Paul and Silas and Timothy saying, listen, you guys are attacking us. 
You're taking from us what is ours, which is our special identity as God's people. And you're saying that we are wrong in continuing to look for a king and our position in the community, whatever it is, is, is kind of going away. Has anybody ever taken that from you? Lessened your position? Thought, i got to deal with this. Maybe just circumstances cost that in you. So we got to deal with this. And so they do. In verse 5, it says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So the Jews are like, hey, let's go find some people who are hanging out, who are you know, kind of uh, questionable in their reputation. Let's get them all riled up, and we're going to go, and we're going to take this mob, and we're going to go to Jason's house, because apparently Jason is housing uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy. We're going to go to Jason's house and go, hey, bring them out of here. We're going to drag them before the city officials. We're going to get rid of these guys. They're causing problems. Now, they, they don't say why, really. They never confront the idea that Paul, the ideas that Paul was sharing. They, they never go to the Scriptures and say, that's not right, that's not in there. There, there is no refutation biblically, which incidentally, always beware if you're upset with someone, but you really can't put your finger on what they really did wrong or what, how they really sinned. Well, they should just know not to do that, or that's just mean, or that's just, is there sin or not? There's so many things that happen in our lives that divide us, and we're like, we get mad about, but we really can't go back to sin. It's just we don't like the fact that we disagree with them. So they go to Jason's house, and seeking, they, they seek to take him in. Verse, um, verse 6, they couldn't find him. And they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them, because Jason, incidentally, is probably their host. They're probably staying with Jason. Uh, maybe he's a tent maker, too. Don't know for sure. Jason was, has received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Interesting, they say they're turning the world upside down. They're causing all kinds of problems when actually the Jews have instigated the problems. It's the fault of the men that Jason has hosted. We can't have this problem with the peace here. They can't be disrupting things. They've turned everything upside down. It's not right. It's really kind of a thin accusation. Basically saying, you know, they're bothering me. You know, like when you're a kid and you say that to your mom and dad, Mom, he's bothering me. You ever do that? They're bothering us. They're a problem. We need to deal with them. But the second thing they say is more serious. It says they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Listen, guys, not only are they causing problems in our city, and the Roman government's not going to like it, but they're saying there's another king besides Caesar. They're calling out Paul and Silas for claiming that Jesus is king. And they're saying that's wrong because Caesar is king. See, they have chosen Caesar as king. They've chosen the king that they want over Jesus. Chosen the king of the world, the 
king of the culture, over Jesus. Verse 8 and 9. So the people of the city, the authorities, were disturbed. And when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They're like, hey, look, this is not probably that serious. We can't find these guys anywhere. Don't know where they went, but listen, Jason, we're going to take some money from you, and uh, we're going to ask you to guarantee that these people will not be a problem anymore, and uh, everybody go home. Not a bad solution, but Jason and his buddies make sure that Paul and Silas and Timothy do leave town. And as a matter of fact, they head down to Berea, another couple, three days uh, trip. When they get down there, if you read the following verses, they get down to Berea and they start seeing the similar results. You know what the Thessalonian Jews do? They go down to Berea and they say, listen, you guys got to get rid of these people because they're going to cause a problem. They are so resistant to the message that they travel to stop it. It's just a very interesting passage. There's three things I want us to see from it that I think relate to us and we need to be aware of in this new year as we consider wanting to be filled with the fullness of God, wanting to know God in every situation, uh, wanting to be rooted and grounded in love and know the unknowable love of Jesus Christ. We have to remember that we have an irrational resistance to grace. Even those of us who are recipients of grace, Even those of us who have been saved by Jesus Christ and received something we don't deserve. Those of us who've walked with him. You see, the Jews had been recipients of grace. They didn't deserve to be God's people. God chose to raise them up. They had many times failed. They had many times had to have God bail them out. Many times they had received things they didn't deserve. But still, they were resistant to God's ultimate grace in Jesus Christ. Surely we don't need him to come die for us. There's something in us. It's our pride that says, I don't need a king to die for me. I'm a pretty good person. Or maybe you feel like, you know what, I was saved a long time ago, and I'm so glad that I I got the grace that God delivered to me. I'm so happy with that, but ever since then, I've been good. I mean, I've been been doing good stuff, and i got a whole record of good stuff. i got a whole resume of Christian goodness. And that's where I really put my you know, my identity, that's how I define myself, is, is I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good dad, I'm a good mom, I'm a good daughter, I'm a good worker, I like to serve, I like to help people. So that's where I define myself. And so when someone comes along and says, wait a minute, is there any repentance in your life? It's like, hey, wait a minute, I repented a long time ago. You see, we have a resistance to grace And the people who never receive Jesus Christ have an initial resistance to grace, and they never know it. Those of us who have walked with him, you've received that grace. We need to understand that even us, we tend to resist it. I'm good now. Thanks, Jesus. But see, Jesus called us to walk with him. And as Paul said, of all the sinners, I am chief. Meaning, we have to constantly walk in a sense of need for him. In a sense of need for his grace. Just beware, we have an irrational resistance to grace. An irrational in the sense that it would be so much better for us if we would constantly 
be saying, Jesus, I need to receive your grace today. I, I know I sinned. I thought this way. I did this thing. I, I want to receive that. The only way to be filled with him constantly is to walk in grace and walk in your need for Jesus. Second thing we need to see is we, are, we desperately want a king like everyone else. We constantly want to slip into society and have a king that's going to rule for us, that's going to defeat everything, that's going to be our king. That's what we want. We want to be like everyone else, or at least we want to defeat everyone else. We want someone else to lead us. And we want them to lead us without changing us. That's really what they wanted in Israel. They wanted a king to come along and say, hey, we're gathering up all the Jews and we're going to be a great nation and you don't have to repent, you don't have to change, you've been doing a good job, we're just going to... But see, that's not how Jesus is, is he? He comes along and praise God. He says, I, I came to change you and clean you up. Which is why you don't need to get cleaned up before you see Jesus. You just need to see Jesus and let him clean you up. He comes and says, I came to save you because you're pathetically lost and you can't stop sinning and you can't be good, but I came to save you. When we resist that, we're saying, I want a king that lets me be who I am. I want a king that lets me live in my sin. So two things. One, we're irrash- we have an irrational resistance to grace. And secondly, we desperately want a king like everyone else. But number three, We are always so close to grace. If you can hear this message today, let me tell you, you are so close to grace. You're so close to receiving all that God wants to give you. And the only thing keeping you from receiving it is admitting that you need it. You're so close. You, the one who's never received Jesus Christ. Just like the Jews who rejected him are so close to the ones who received him, they're just a prayer away. They're just a step away. One step this way, the other step that way. One step to follow Paul, the other step not to follow Paul. You are so close to grace. The only thing holding you back is the pride that says, I'm pretty good on my own. That's what stops us from receiving what God wants to give us. If you're a follower of Jesus, as I said earlier, you may have be living in this whole zone of I received Jesus, now I've been good, so now I'm defined by all the good stuff I've done. No, you need to step back and say, God, I need to repent of everything that I've done. And I want to receive that grace every day because you died for me to live with me, not to die for me and set me on my course and report later. We're so close. See, because we have this irrational resistance to grace, we need to be ruthless in defining ourselves and our person as someone who habitually is in need of Jesus. You absolutely need him every day. That needs to be how you're defined. You're not defined by your last quarter's success. You're not defined by your family's success. You're not defined by all the things that you've accomplished or all that you've accumulated. You're not defined by all your failure either. I want to be defined 
as a follower of Jesus Christ. Someone who is constantly in need of him. Is that where you would like to be in 2023? Jesus, I constantly need you. I want to constantly be filled with you. God, remind us that we tend to resist what you want to give us by saying we're good enough. We've got it all figured out. This morning, I urge you, I urge you to find yourself in your life as someone in need of Jesus, someone who has Jesus. If you haven't received him, you're not sure, we would love to talk with you after the service because you are so close. You're right there on the, all it takes is for you to open the door of faith to say, Jesus, would you come in and save me? I need you. Would you bow with me as our praise team comes on stage? Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to support this ministry, go to our website at fbcdelray.com. Also, click the share button so you can share this message with a friend or someone in need as we seek to know Jesus, to know others, and to make him known. We cry out, we cry out.